The message I have this morning is a Father's Day message, but I don't want just the fathers to pay attention, so that's why the title of the message is A Virtuous Man. So it's uh, for you if you're boys, if you're teenagers, if you're single, if you're married without kids, if you're married with kids, or if you're grandfathers, this message should be for you. So I try to address men in general, but more specifically those who are fathers. So I'm going to look at Job chapter 29 with you. Job chapter 29, if you would turn to that, please, in your pew Bibles or if you have a Bible app. Job 29. And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness as I was in my prime, and when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the righteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters and the dew all night on my branches. My glory fresh with me and my bow ever new in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After they spoke, I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain. They opened their mouths as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose their way and sat as chief. I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. This is the word of our God. Jane Matties was a single mother by choice and a New York City psychotherapist. She founded a group called Single Mothers by Choice, SMC, after having had her own son as a single woman. And she's overseen the growth of this organization from the original chapter in New York City to chapters all around the US and Canada, Europe, and beyond. The website says this, a single mother by choice is a single woman who decides to become a mother who knows that she will be the sole parent of her child, at least at the outset. Our organization's primary purpose is to provide strong peer support and information for women who are considering or have chosen single motherhood. And so the organization encourages women who want to have children without being married, has articles to help them, it deals with the daddy question, or there's no daddy there. And uh, the organization helps women to believe that it is acceptable to raise a perfectly adjusted child 
both psychologically and socially without a father. It may help to have a father around, but he's not necessary. Fathers and men in general are dispensable. Now, of course, it is better for a woman, if she's single, who becomes pregnant, to have a child, rather than giving it up for adoption, or worse even, for abortion. God's grace can be at work, and especially in Christian single mothers, if any of you are single mothers, I don't want to denigrate your work. God's grace can be at work in your life to help you, and especially in the context of a community of the church where you have people to support you. But not all children are content with only a mother as a parent. And all the studies show, all the studies show, just empirically, that children in general raised by single parents have higher problems. Girls are more prone to depression, to get married out of, get pregnant out of wedlock. Boys tend to get in trouble with the law. They're more likely to smoke and drink and do drugs. And there's higher rates of mental disorders among children raised by single parents. And in some communities, especially in the States, in some groups, 70% of children are born to single mothers. And many people, Christians certainly, but many who are not even Christians, suggest that this may be a, a key cause of the personal social problems that many teenagers especially experience. It appears, empirically, that fathers are not dispensable, that men are not dispensable, as many suggest in our society. And certainly, God's word reinforces that. And yet, many men in our culture really don't know what it means to be a man. Often, men are considered the problem, especially if you're a white male, you know, you're in, uh, intrinsically uh, uh, privileged and all those sorts of things, and you're the cause of all the problems that occur in society. And so many men struggle to understand what it is to be a man, what it is to be a husband, what it is to be a father. And even Christian men are often confused about this. So where can we find some direction? Of course, there's some verses scattered all over the place, which I will be referring to in this message. But you know, when you think of a passage that applies to women, you think of Proverbs 31, right? The, the description of the woman of noble character. It will not exactly parallel. A while ago, I read a book where, which suggested to me that Job 29 is somewhat parallel. It gives us a sense of what the life of the virtuous Christian man, Christian father, is like. Now, you know, Job struggles with a lot. He's lost his wealth, he's lost his children, and then he's lost his health. And so a lot of the book is him struggling with God, crying out to God, and also debating with these so-called friends who have the easy solution. But he pours out his sorrow and anguish to God. He cries out because he wants the reassurance that God is still with him because he's afraid that God has abandoned him. And in this section, chapter 29, God, Job remembers the good old days. Now this is not a nostalgic remembrance that gives sort of a golden hue to the days of the past. It's a recounting of his former happiness and honor as he lived his life as a man of God. So I wanna look at some themes that he mentions in this chapter, in his monologue, remembering his past, and suggest to you that we find there are certain, certain aspects 
of a virtuous man and certainly of a virtuous father. So I'm going to have five points, breaking the rules, not three points, five points. So we should first of all hear that a man of God has an intimate friendship with God. This is in the first few verses. We know that from the beginning of the book, Job was a man who was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Very first verse, it says that. And having lost his family and wealth, he accepted this from the hand of God. He never cursed God. He was not a fair weather Christian, only praising and worshiping God when things were going well. And so in verse three, we read that he longs for the days when God's lamp shone upon my head and by his light, I walked through darkness. He's not necessarily referring to the good times of the past, but what he's referring to here is the experience of a closeness with God. And that's why he struggles so much, because he fears that God has abandoned him. God has just left him on his own, and he's, he has to deal with his own devices, with the pain and the suffering and the discouragement that he's going through. So we see that a man of God walks with God even through difficult circumstances wants to have intimate friendship and let that bless his house. We know also that Job is a man of prayer. Again, in the very first chapter, we read that he prayed even for his children daily, fearing that they might have sinned. So he prayed and offered sacrifices for them. So it's, he's a wonderful, godly man. And he didn't let the busyness of life take away from that. You know, some people have said our problem in our age is we have so many conveniences and so much wealth, certainly in Western society, that we just seem to be caught up with busyness, with doing stuff. And if you have any spare time, you take out the old phone and you know, you go on, on social media and check whatever uh, app you, you, where you post things, or your friends post things and you send messages. And so children, especially boys, can get the picture from their fathers of what it means to be a man or what are the priorities? Is it the prestige and status that work gives? Do boys see their fathers working all the time or perhaps even when they're home, working around the house all the time? Or do they see their fathers living for sports, always having the TV on some game? I like the Blue Jays, so I like, but I, it's painful for me to watch when they lose, so I don't watch that much, all right? But there's nothing wrong with these things, of giving, giving our time to work, work around the house, our favorite activities, our favorite sports teams, but they must be done in moderation. And as Augustine said, God always has to be our first love. And the other things that we love always have to be ordered underneath that love. So the important issue is that children in general, and especially boys, see their fathers who walk by the light of the living God, who delight in worshiping God, delight in being in his presence, both in the good times and the bad times, both in public when other people are seeing them and in private, in the home life. Children need fathers who teach them what it is to walk in the way of the Lord. And we see that back in Deuteronomy 6, as God's instructing his people before they enter the promised land. You know, these well-known words, he says, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So whatever you do, these statutes, they're, they're, to, they're to guide you the way you live. They're to be part of our daily life, not just in public, but also around the home. Not just when the times are good, but also in the rough times. That's the calling that God gives to all people, but especially to men and fathers, as they have an influence on their children and their boys. Secondly, we see here that a man of God practices wisdom righteousness and justice. Verse seven, Job remembers when he went to the gate of the city, when he prepared his seat in the square. The gate in the city was where all the important business, also in a sense the transactions and even the legal judgments were made in Israel. And so the respected men of the city would sit there, the elders of the community, and they would be consulted because of their understanding of fairness and justice and the wisdom that they had shown over the years. Job speaks of going there and the young men stepping aside to let him take a seat, a sign of respect. He refers even to the old men who are considered to have great wisdom, rising in his presence, showing respect for him and in a sense saying, you have wisdom just as much as we do or perhaps even more. Even the chief men, the recognized leaders of the community refrain from speaking in Job's presence because his words of wisdom needed no correction and no addition. So Job is a man of wisdom. He, had, he got there because he aspired to wisdom. It doesn't just come on you. Book of Proverbs says, if you want wisdom, seek wisdom. That's what you do. You know, we live in an information age where some people have said, a six-year-old child can get more information on the computer than their grandparents had access over their lifetime. But information is not wisdom. Wisdom is the life. One, one commentator said, wisdom is biblically directed insight into life and its purposes. Biblically directed insight into life and its purposes. And being a father, you have to have wisdom. You have to know how to raise children. And you have to know, because children are different, you have to know the different gifts and abilities and different personalities and how to deal with those children in an appropriate way so that they may develop as children of God. They may form their lives trusting in Christ and developing wisdom. In the novel, uh, The Chosen, not, not the movie series, that's out, but the novel The Chosen by Chaim Potak, who's a Jewish author, he tells the story, this was made into a movie as well, so I've read the book and seen the movie. He tells the story of two boys, a Hasidic, uh, the, a boy who's a son of a Hasidic rabbi, Danny, and he develops a friendship with Reuven, who's actually a Jew, but his father's secular, so it's a very secularized family. This takes place in the, in the early 50s. And um, 
as they developed their friendship, one, one time Danny, the, the son of the Hasidic rabbi, says to Reuven, he says, I don't know what he, my dad's trying to do with me. He, he's, he's silent with me. I admire him and I think he's a great man. I respect him. And that's why I can think with his silence, but I don't know why he's silent with me. Before Danny can, he said, finds he's talking to Reuven, he says, I'm, I'm gonna ask my father. He's been like this wave ever since I can remember. But his father calls Danny in and he wants Reuven there, because he knows Reuven is his friend. And so he speaks, and <laughs> in the movie they have it, he actually addresses Danny by speaking to Reuven, like he can't address Danny directly, but he confides through Reuven. And he says, he says I, I know I raised my son to be a rabbi like me, but I know that he will not become a rabbi. I've known this for a long time. And Reb Saunders, the Hasidic father says, this is America, not Europe, but an open world where there are books and libraries and schools and great universities that do not concern themselves with how many Jewish students they have because every Jew can attend. And I knew already that I could not prevent Danny's mind from going into the world for knowledge. I knew in my heart that it might, I, it might prevent him from taking my place. But I wanted to make sure that he had tzaddik, that is wisdom in his life. And so Reb Saunders reveals, again through Reuven, but he's really speaking to Danny, that his plan was not merely to train Danny but to take his inherited position, to, to take his inherited position, but rather to pass on the tradition so when he goes into the world, he would be prepared to enter one with a compassionate soul, not with a brilliant, uncaring intellect, because you saw this, kid, this boy was brilliant. Even as a, he describes, as a young boy, he would read him a story and he could tell them the story back with all the details. And so he knew the sun was very bright. And so he says, again speaking to Donnie through Reuven, he says, one learns the pain of others by suffering one's own pain, by turning oneself inside out, by finding one's own soul. And it is important to know pain. It destroys our self-pride, our arrogance, our indifference toward others. And of all things, a Hasidic Jew must know pain. He must know how to suffer for his people. He must take the pain and carry it upon his shoulders. And it is for this end that I raise Donnie in silence, that the pain might teach him humility. For all his brilliance, because his brilliance could lead him to be arrogant and look down on, on people. I wanted him to be wise and humble with his gifts. That's a good example. He knew what his son, and he knew what he had to do to keep him son. And the story goes on, he was eventually accepted into psychology and was gonna to plan to get a doctorate. So he knew he had to make, and I've been enough, around enough academics to know academics can be very arrogant, right? But he knew this, he had to do this. And so to shape godly character in children, a father must know his children and must raise them appropriately. I'm not suggesting you should necessarily give your kids the silent treatment to do that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse seven, the author writes, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? A godly man, a godly father, guides his children so that they may know the wisdom that is found in Jesus Christ and in the gospel. And so they may pursue a life of righteousness and justice, not just for them, but for others. Thirdly, we see that a man of God delights in, in practicing compassion and fatherless. Job speaks here of rescuing the poor and the fatherless, verse 12, verses 15 to 17, serving the dying and the widow, aiding the blind and the lame, the needy and the stranger. And so our children need to see us not merely talking about love, you know, there's lots of talk about love in our society and justice, but actually reaching out in love and being agents of that. And not just within our circle of friends, you know, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, you know better than the pagans, but to love those who can't love back, to develop compassionate hearts, to, to resist the self-centeredness of our society. So children learn to think of others as they are part of a family and of a church that does that. Fathers need to have hearts of compassion that go out to others, to hearts that are patient with the weaknesses and failings of others, because that reflects God's character. Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Note the parallel parallel between the compassion of God and it reflected some way in the compassion of a father with his children. One of the most moving parables that Jesus tells, of course, is the parable of the prodigal son. Even non-Christians know that parable. And he uses the illustration of com a compassionate and gracious earthly father to communicate God's grace and compassion to the unworthy. Not just read, let me just read the part where the prodigal son, there's really two prodigal sons, but the sinful son returns. It says, he arose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, he's got this all rehearsed, you know, he rehearsed in his mind what he was going to say to the father. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his next line was, just take me in as a servant. But his father cuts him off. And the father said to his servants, uh, bring quickly the robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let's eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began, began to celebrate. And the parable goes on to speak, of course, of the older brother. He's lost too, though he doesn't realize it, because he's prone to legalism. And he has a hard heart and he, he's angry at his father for showing compassion to this brother. He refuses to come in to join the party. And the father goes out to him, just as when he saw the wayward son coming home, he went out to the wayward son. He goes out as well to this stiff-necked, to use an Old Testament term, son. And he says, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Of course, it's an ultimate parable about God, but it shows, as scripture says, that fathers, Christians in general, but fathers need to be 
compassionate. A wise and godly father models the grace of God. Not, not to the detriment of truth, right? Truth still must be maintained, but it models the grace of God and encourages his children to imitate this by the power of the Spirit in their lives through faith in Christ. Fourthly, we see here that a man of God pursues justice and righteousness for the needy and the vulnerable in the community. We've already seen, I've read that passage where Job talks about reaching out to the needy, the vulnerable, the witty, widow, the orphan, um, the blind, the lame, and so on. But in verse 16, <clears throat> we read, I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. He's not just waiting for people to come to him. Oh, I have a need. He searches out in the community, who are the needy people? Who can I show favor to? Who can I help? And a godly father does this and teaches his children to do the same, not just in words, but in actions. You know, in our society, it's so easy to pass this on. We have so many government agencies and, uh, you know, social services and, and we think, well, they'll take care of the problem, so let them do it. But if men, especially fathers, are following the call of God, are models of God, we can't just pass it off to government agencies. God his, himself tells us, Psalm 68, he's a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. That's God in his holy habitation. One of the things I'm a bit amazed at, perhaps you've seen it as well, but I see it in my church, there's a whole movement among Christians to provide foster care for and even adopt orphans. And these are not often kids that are babies. These are older kids. And the reason that they're orphans is they have some disability or some handicap, maybe developmentally delayed. And I'm amazed in my church of families that have done this. I know one family, we were part of their small group for a while, and they raised a boy who's clearly uh, developmentally delayed and sort of disrupted their family somewhat, but they felt the calling of God to do that. Another family, a couple who really are a professional family, their kids are all grown up, and they adopt a boy with autism. Abel's his name, and he's a handful. Uh, they brought him to church, and he'll have outbursts, He'll run around the worship center in the middle of a service. And he's been very trying for his parents and, and the church. I mean, we have to learn patience. So on, why do they do that? Because underlying that is a deep sense that parents and the church's love and acceptance of these children is not only calling of God, but models how God deals with us. His forgiveness, His grace, His patience embodies the superabundance of the gospel to unworthy people, handicapped by sin and often having rebellious natures. Yet God has elected us from eternity, has chosen to be gracious to us, and is working out our salvation in and through the work of the Spirit. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are, and that should move us to show love for those, to seek them out, as these people have who fostered or even adopted these needy kids. With God's help, 
That is what we're called to embody in some measure by his power. And finally, we see that a man of God strives for the honor of guiding others in the counsel of life. Verses 21 to 23, I'm going to read this again. Men listened to me and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. His words to them were like the spring rain. You know, we've had a dry spring. Finally, we've got some rain. And farmers love the spring rain because it gets the crops going, and it'll produce a harvest. So our spirits and words as men and fathers is to be like that. It's very easy to be an authoritarian father, a harsh father. And you perhaps have experienced that, and I know people, and they, it's affected their view of God. Never, I can never do enough to get them to accept me. And this is especially important in guiding children. Yeah, you, you know, you're, when the kids are little and you're the father, you can lay down the line. But that isn't going to endure. That isn't going to work its way into their hearts. There's many uh, passages, of course, in the book of Proverbs that encourage children to listen to their fathers. Proverbs 23, 22, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. 4.1, hear, O sons, a father's instruction and be attentive that you may gain insight. But then Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not provoke, some, some translations say, exasperate your children. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So don't just be the dominant authority in their lives, laying down the law. They need structure, right? They need discipline. But we're not to be authoritarian dictators in our home. But to men who deal with our children as God has and as he continues to deal with us. God tells us that he is delighted when his children walk in faith and obedience. And we read in Proverbs 23, 24, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son or daughter will be glad in him or her. Not in the success of their career, though we are concerned about the careers of our children, not in financial success, not in their influence in the world, but their growth in faith and obedience and righteousness. That's what God calls us to do. That's what he calls us in the focus with our kids. So what is a virtuous man, a virtuous father? A virtuous man or father has an intimate friendship with God practices wisdom, righteousness, and justice, delights in practicing compassion and mercy, pursues righteousness and justice for the needy and the vulnerable, and strives for the honor of guiding others in the counsel of life and knowing Jesus Christ. A few years ago, my wife and I were in Quebec City for a brief vacation. We stayed in a bed and breakfast, a delightful elderly lady, uh, she didn't much speak much English, and I didn't speak much French, though I've learned French, but we managed to communicate. And she told us about uh, the grief in her life. She said her husband had died a year before, or sorry, a couple of years before, and then shortly after her husband di died, her house burnt down, and she lost all her mementos, 
all her photographs and she said to us, I feel like I've been through two deaths in one year. The loss of this man that I lived with so long and the loss of the memories, all the memories of children and grandchildren. Imagine your house burning down and all the stuff that you've accumulated in your life is gone. Imagine your life savings wiped out. Ask yourself, what is the legacy I want to leave my children? It should be a legacy that reflects the impact of God on me, in my character, in my life, and a way he has been with me over the years. Proverbs 27 says, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Psalm 103, 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. To those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, right? His children, how do we pass it on? Through our parenting, our modeling, our discipling our children. That is the legacy that we should strive to, among others, of course, furthering the gospel and the ministry of the church and glorifying God, of course, all those other things. But in terms of sort of the focus in our family life, that is the focus, that's the legacy that we leave. The legacy that we fathers need to focus on and grandfathers as living examples of our heavenly father. We do this because of the gospel. We do this by the power of Christ through his spirit. We do this to draw our children and others to the grace and fullness of life in Christ. We do this to be witnesses to those around us because goodness, our society needs to see not only some measure of love and beauty in families, but some measure of parenting and especially of fathers. And we do this to communicate the good news of the gospel, not to point to us, but that people may be drawn to the God who works in us, gives us a foundation and motivates us to live as this way, as men, as fathers, as men and women. Would you join me in prayer, please? Let's pray. Lord God, you are our Father. And in the Lord's Prayer, the first thing you call us to pray is our Father. And we know that we're your Father only because of what Christ has done, the work of the Spirit in our hearts, so that we're receptive and we embrace him through faith and live out of thankfulness and love. And Lord, we don't want that just to be some things that we rattle around in our heads or that we proclaim Sunday morning. We want that to be a reality that permeates our lives. We want to live with the impact of the gospel and with the power of the gospel in our lives. So I pray for fathers, that you would lead them to seek guidance from you, to be men of prayer and of the word, and to strive to be in, in a, with accountability to other men, what you call them to be as fathers and as husbands. And I pray for all men, and those who are not yet men, but are gonna grow up to be men, I pray that they would seek the, the virtue that you call to, a virtue that is not man-centered, doesn't point to us, but it's God-centered. 
It's virtue that flows out of knowing you. We are weak, but you promise your spirit, and you promise that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. Enable us to be what you call us to be. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.